And what we've been doing this particular semester in the Bible is been, we've been working through the second book of the Bible, Bible called Exodus. And uh, we've been making the pitch every single week, except for last week because of the snow. Um, but every single week otherwise, we've been saying that Exodus is telling you two things at the same time. On the one hand, it's telling you the true story of what happened then historically, but it's also telling you the true story of the universe. And we're unpacking really what that means, but the question that we're asking is, what is your story? What is your particular story, and how in the world does your story fit within the bigger story of the universe? With that in mind, let's look at this passage that you have, hopefully in your handout or on the slide behind me. And it reads this. This is a chunky section from Exodus chapter 3, but here's what it says. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord had gone When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is God's word. Let me pray before we look at it, okay? Let's pray. Father, we would ask that your spirit would attend the reading and the teaching of your word now, that you would soften our hearts and press 
the truth of your word deep into our hearts and into our souls so that we would be transformed from the inside out. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, because you know, and we know, we have no hope of understanding or being transformed or being changed apart from your great mercy. So would you do that? We would pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last uh, November, a few months ago, my wife Catherine and I, we were out to dinner with a couple in Maryville, and uh, the way that my chair was positioned in the restaurant, I could see who was coming in the front of the restaurant to get a table. And after a while, you know, kind of halfway through our meal, in walks a party of four, one of whom was KCB. If you don't know who KCB is, KCB was on The Bachelor a couple of seasons ago. And I recognized her only because my wife makes me watch it with her. And um, so I see KCB, and now, like, like I'm, I'm kind of whispering to uh, the, the people we were with, and my wife, I'm like, y'all, KCB from The Bachelor just walked in. And so it was, it was really interesting to see the way that different people reacted kind of when you're in the, in the presence of somebody famous or somebody important because, you know, being on, being on The Bachelor is, is a weird type of celebrity. You're not like a famous athlete or an actor or an actress. You're a game show contestant on a round-robin marriage tournament. That's what you are. And so there's really no reason why you should be famous, but you're famous and we know who you are. And so the, the couple we're with, you know, they're kind of like poking each other and ooing and on. I'm kind of like, I get really weird around celebrities because I want them to, since I hang out with them like all the time, I really want them to have their space, and I feel like, you know, I want them to kind of have a private life. I feel weird about invading their privacy. My wife, not so much. She gets up from our table. <laughs> this, at this point, KCB and her crew have sat down. She goes over to them and has like a five-minute long conversation with her new best friend, Casey, and their couple. And they're, they're like catching up like old buddies, like, oh, you're like, what do you do? Like, where are you living now? What are you up to? And uh, I actually love the way that my wife... Um, interacts with important people. Uh, when we were dating, she was living in Atlanta at the time. I was living in Louisiana. And when she was in Atlanta, she was in a Dick's Sporting Goods and saw from across the way Andre 3000 and ran up to him calling out, Mr. 3000, Mr. 3000. <laughs> when, she, when, she come, when, you know, when he turns around and she starts talking to him, here's what she says. This is, this is not a joke. She says, you know, I know who you are. But you don't know who I am. And she introduces herself, and you know, he kind of chuckled at that. And she offered herself uh, to be a backup dancer for her. And so the woman has no fear. She's not here. She's normally here tonight, but she approved of me telling those stories. But I do think it's interesting. When people come into the presence of greatness, sort of the, the different reactions and the different way that people respond... And so really the question I want to ask tonight is, you know, what would it look like then if you encountered not human greatness, but divine greatness? In other words, what would happen if you actually encountered God? How do you know if you have encountered God? Because there's certainly a lot of people in this room that would claim, yeah, I've, I've encountered him. I have a relationship with him. Well, how, okay, how do you know? How do you know that you haven't just encountered a figment of your imagination? Well, I think that this passage actually helps us and it instructs us to let us know the way that you know that you've encountered God is at least sort of four things that we'll see in this passage tonight. Because encountering God is unexpected, it is unsettling, it is unimaginable, and it's uncomfortable. 
Those are the four things that, you, that encountering God really is like. It's, it's incredibly uh, unexpected. It's unsettling. It's unimaginable. And it's uncomfortable. Okay, l- l- let me kind of tease this out from this passage. If you look back at, this, at the story, God appears to Moses very famously calling out to him in verse 4 as a burning bush. Now, I know some of you are thinking automatically, okay, now the, the bush is talking. Okay, so um, I knew when I was going to come into sort of this Christian thing on campus, it was going to be weird. I didn't, you know, give this Christian, I haven't been around this Christian deal for a while, but I tried this RUF thing out for, you know, I gave it a shot, and here I am, and now the bushes are talking. And uh, this is this weird, stupid fairy tale stuff that Christians believe, but as an educated person, I just can't buy into that. Now, I want you to know, if that's what you're thinking, you actually have a lot more in common with Moses than you may realize. Because look at what Moses does. In verse 3, Moses refers to this as a strange sight. The literal word there is that this is inexplicable. This is weird for Moses, too. This is not a normal thing for him, either. And so think about it. If if you were to put yourself in Moses' shoes, this was the last place that that Moses ever expected God to show up. Moses' people have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. No one has heard a word from God. Nobody expected God to show up now. Nobody's looking for God. He's effectively off the scene, as it were. And think about Moses' life in particular. Even though he was an Israelite, he was born and raised in the Egyptian palace. He was raised and groomed by the Egyptian upper class. But, as we discovered a couple weeks ago, he lost his temper one day, killed somebody, and then became a fugitive on the run and ran into the wilderness, ran into the desert. And his life, as it were, you know, is over. No more Egyptian country clubs. No more silver spoon, no more dollar dollar bills, y'all. This is a radical detour from the life that he had expected to live. And as we, as we find him in the beginning of chapter 3, Moses is a shepherd hanging out with animals, someone else's animals in the desert for 40 years he's been doing this. I'm 33. I'm not even there yet. Like my whole life hasn't even been lived to the point that he was in the desert like wandering around after animals. His life is in a crazy detour, crazy mess. He's in the wilderness and yet that's where God shows up. That's where he encounters God in this completely unexpected place. And if you think about it, that's actually not that all odd. Most people's stories, I would suggest, happen to encounter God in the most unexpected places of their life, usually in the downward slope, as it were. This is some of your stories. This is my story. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was at the lowest point of my depression. I was lonely. I was suicidal. I didn't um, hang out with friends on the weekend. I just stayed home and listened to, like, depressing music by myself. I thought life was pretty meaningless. I I felt like the whole point of life was, like, Okay, I jump through these hoops that society tells me to jump through so I can get a career and have kids so that kids can go jump through all these hoops and have a career and have kids so that their kids can go jump through all these I just felt like the whole point of it was purposeless, meaningless. I was at the lowest point. And that summer, after my sophomore year of high school, I encountered God. 
God showed up in the most unexpected lowest point of my life, and honestly, my life has not been the same since. But some of you feel that. Some of you identify with that, where you really do feel like your life is not going the way that you expected it to go. Your life is in a detour. Your life is in a desert, a wilderness. Some of you feel like you're at the wrong school, where you really do feel like UT has not been what you wanted it to be. It has not lived up to the hype that you thought it would live up to. You you haven't found the friends here that you wanted to find. The friends that you have made here are not anything like your high school friends. Some of you feel so lonely, so misunderstood that you really just want, want to transfer or you want to get out of here. Some of you feel like you're in a wrong school. Some of you feel like you're in the wrong relationship where you really do feel like uh, the boyfriend or the girlfriend that you're with right now, life would not be so hard if you were with somebody else or if you were single. That life wouldn't be so empty or boring, or maybe you wouldn't fight so much if you were with that person, or maybe you wouldn't be so sexually tempted if you were with that person. And some, of, some of you really do feel like you're in the wrong relationship. Some of you feel like you're in the wrong um, family. You have the wrong family. You have the wrong body. You're in the wrong fraternity, the wrong sorority. Some of you feel like you're in the wrong major. All of us at some level feel like Life is not going as we expected it would. And the weird thing is, is that this passage sort of suggests that's the place where most people often find God. In the lowest points, in the unexpected places, in the detours and in the mess. So could it be that you are in one of those spots? And maybe this is one of those moments in your life where encountering God is on the brink, as it were. But what does that require of you? Well, look. Look at what Moses does. In verse 3, Moses says, I will go over. Which means, commentators say that he, that means that he had to intentionally cross like a ravine to go check out what this weird burning bush thing was all about. In other words, encountering God requires investigation on your part. It does require you like going over and like asking the questions, like checking it out. This is why I wanted to introduce to you Catherine and Alex and myself because the RUF staff would love more than anything to sit down with you and help you investigate and try to help answer some of those questions that you may have. We would love to sit down with you over coffee or lunch or donuts or a milkshake or whatever. If you really do feel like life is not going as I thought it would go, what in the world could God possibly be up to? This is why your community groups are set up the way that they're set up so that you have, a pro, you have a place to ask and explore those questions. There's tons of churches in Knoxville that would love to help you investigate and explore those questions. Because if you investigate and explore those questions, what is God up to in the middle of this unexpected detour of my life? You just may encounter him in an unimaginable way. Because encountering God is unexpected. That's the first thing we learn. Here's the second thing. Encountering God's also unsettling. And and here's why I say that. As Moses begins to approach God, this kind of burning bush, look at what verse 5. God says in verse 5, don't come any closer. You are essentially approaching pure holiness. Do not come any closer. In other words, it's like Moses is walking into like a nuclear power reactor and God's grabbing him by the back of the shirt and saying like, Do not take another step because you will be obliterated if you come any closer. And look at what Moses' reaction is. Verse 6. 
Moses hides his face, and he's terrified. Now, why would Moses be terrified to come into the presence of God once he realizes this is what this is? It's because Moses, when he, when he is putting two and two together, he realizes he is getting a glimpse of God's unfiltered, burning holiness. And it undoes him. It is deeply disturbing. It is deeply unsettling to him. And, and here's why. I tried to, here's my best attempt to try to illustrate what's going on in his heart. When I was, uh, I was once an intern with RUF as well. I was at LSU, which is why I was in Louisiana. And uh, I, I played, this, I'm telling you this with all, mostly shame, um, a, a terrible prank on one of my fellow interns that was at a different school. I pretended to be one of his students. So I would call him and get him to think, oh, that, he, that I'm just this student that he hasn't met yet, that I got his phone number off the website or whatever. I would talk with him about like my problems, and it was all—it was awful. It was absolutely awful because he's like counseling me and like thinking that he's doing ministry, and the whole thing was a joke. It was awful, totally cruel, totally mean. Was, you feel free to hate me because it was an awful thing. When he eventually found out that it was a prank, the next day I get a call from my boss in the RUF headquarters—you know, the office in Atlanta. And the phone call um, was absolutely terrifying for me because here I am talking to, you know, an authority that I'm accountable to, to this person that, you know, I've, yeah, I've totally screwed up. And, you know, he's, you know, scolding me and, you know, chastising me in a very gracious Christian-y kind of way of scolding someone. And so he's, you know, you know, I was terrified because he held in his hands, you know, my job. He totally could have fired me. And if I was fired as an intern in ministry, I'd just know I would have thought, I mean, I would have second-guessed my whole career path. Like, am I even supposed to be in ministry? Do I even have the maturity to be able to handle it? I, everything would have been tossed up in the air. I was terrified in front of human authority. What would it look like to be in the presence of divine authority? Of, of someone who can't just fire you, but someone that could literally obliterate you. Because this is what's going on with Moses. He realizes he's coming in the presence of an authority figure that he is accountable to and is guilty. And someone that when they interact with guilt, obliterate it. This is what God does with sin. This is why, because God is so unbelievably holy. What he says is, he has to, by necessity, destroy all sin. Destroy anything that is unholy. That is what it means for him to be good. That's what it means for goodness to interact with badness, is to get rid of it. And that is why Moses is absolutely terrified. That's why people over and over, when they meet God in the Bible, they're undone. They're either melted into a puddle, or they explode into worship, or they want to kill him. But no one has a reaction in the Bible when they actually interact with the real God. Nobody is ever indifferent. So here's my question for you tonight. If, if you've ever, if you, if you come to the God of the Bible, when you think about God and you're bored, or if you think that God is, you know, sweet and comforting, or if you think that God is even just sort of remotely, vaguely guilt-producing, let me suggest that you haven't met God yet. You haven't encountered God yet. Because really, encountering God leads you to the end of yourself. 
where you're so undone, you're so unsettled, you're so disturbed by the fact that you're a mess, that you're guilty, that you're unholy, that you're, that you're a train wreck, just like me. But when you come into the presence of superlative holiness, absolute holiness, that should affect you. And if you haven't been unsettled in some way, then chances are you haven't actually encountered the real God of the Bible yet. Maybe you've interacted with a figment of your imagination. Because encountering God, is, it's unsettling. It's unexpected, it's unsettling. Third, it's unimaginable. And I mean unimaginably good and amazing. Look at this. Several different times, God identifies himself Maybe you picked it up when I read it a second ago. As the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see this in verse 6. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 15, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 16, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm their God. They are my people. Okay, who's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Abraham was an idol worshiper. Uh, On two different occasions, he offered his wife to have sex with a foreign king because he was afraid that the foreign king was going to kill him. That's Abraham. Who's Isaac? Isaac was a uh, terrible parent. He gave preferential treatment to one of his kids, and as a result, his whole family was crazy dysfunctional. He was the head of the most dysfunctional family in the Bible. In fact, you know, like his family that you can read about in Genesis is like the Bluth family of, it's like the biblical version of the Bluth family from Arrested Development. That's Isaac. Who's Jacob? Jacob was a thief, a liar, and a con artist. He would have been an amazing character on Breaking Bad. Jacob would have been. This, these are the people that God says, I'm their God. These are my people. Let me, okay, so let me update the language of what God is actually saying here when he says this. Because this is unbelievable. He says, I'm the God of, of porn addicts. I'm the God of people that cut themselves. I'm the God of people that have eating disorders. I'm the God of workaholics. I'm the God of people that lie to their parents. I'm the God of people that have premarital sex. I'm the God of drug addicts. I'm the God of these self-righteous Pharisees. That's who I am. These are my people. It is, it is unimaginable that God would say and identify himself with these types of people. But this is what he says. Now, if you're even paying attention to me right now, if you're connecting the dots, you should be thinking to yourself, didn't you just spend this whole second point saying God is holy and fiery and he's just going to obliterate all sin and all sorts of bad people? How can you say, on the one hand, God's holy and just going to, He's so opposed to sin, but on the other hand, he's so loving and just sort of identifies with sinners. How can these two things go together? Well, the the tension in this passage does not actually get resolved. And that tension doesn't actually get resolved in the Old Testament at all. That is the major question that you're lingering with if you were to read sort of the entire Old Testament. The question is, how can God be holy and opposed to sin on the one hand, and loving and love sinful people on the other. The tension does not get resolved until centuries later. When Jesus comes on the scene, he's having this one interaction with religious leaders, and they're wanting him to fess up if he's the Christ, because he's kind of being weird about it. 
So they're asking him, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? And here's what Jesus says. This is out of John 10. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. You don't believe because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I am a shepherd, and my people are my flock. They are mine. I am theirs. And because I am theirs, no one can take them out of my hand. Not even them. Not even their own stupidity, their own wickedness. Nobody can ruin this relationship. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm the God of these people, and these are my people. And the Pharisees at this point take up stones to kill him. And they keep trying to kill him and keep trying to kill him until eventually they do. They pick him up and they put him on a cross. And as Jesus dies on the cross, that's when this great mystery, this tension gets resolved. Because what the cross tells you is that God is so holy that the fire of his holiness must consume sin. It must. And so Jesus wraps himself up in our sin and goes to the cross and gets obliterated in our place. And yet, on the other hand, the reason why God does this, why he gives up his son, is because God is so loving. God's holiness and God's love come together at the cross in a way that no one would have ever expected it. His holiness is preserved and his love is poured out. This is why we love this story so much. We love this idea so much that we keep telling this over and over and over in every story that we basically tell in our culture, which is basically a life for a life out of love. Think about that plot line. There's a million examples of someone giving up their life for another out of love for that person. Here's one, Harry Potter. You know, um, when Harry is born, he who must not be named comes to the house, and his parents, James and Lily, are there. And he who must not be named, I will not say it, obliterated James, the father. And what did the mom do? She stepped in front. She sacrificially gave herself. And he who must not be named took her out instead of Harry. And that act of sacrificial love was so powerful, it protected him that the killing curse bounced off of Harry, as it were. The power of sacrificial love, that is the basis for your life if you are in Christ. That his holiness has been dealt with at the cross out of nothing but love for you. And here's what this means. Let me me connect the dots to your actual life real quick. This means that if you are in Christ, you can wake up in the morning and feel like, I have not done enough for God. I have not read my Bible in I don't know how long. I haven't prayed in weeks. I should be farther along than I am. I should have like kind of gotten it by now. I should, I should be better than I am. And you can, in that moment, be assured of the love of God that he looks at you and says, I'm the God of spiritual failures. And I have love for you and grace for you. You can, you can wake up in the morning and in Christ wake up and say, well, you know those feelings sometimes you just wake up and you're just like, you have kind of just that yuck feeling of just like, there's, I feel guilty, I feel unclean, I know that I've done things and thought things and said things I shouldn't have, and I've done things and thought things and said things that I should have but I didn't. And you just feel that yuck feeling. You can have a deep confidence and assurance that in that moment God looks at you and says, I'm the God of the unclean, and I have nothing but love for you. 
nothing. And when, and when that begins to get sort of into your bones, that sort of love, that sort of fiery love for you, that's what invigorates you. That's what electrifies you to live a completely different life, to worship and to obey and to serve him alone. Because you know that, man, his, his love is, is unimaginably better than you think it is. That he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Matt Howell. Last thing. Encountering God is um, unexpected. It's unsettling. It's unimaginable. Lastly, it's, it's also uncomfortable. And here's what I mean by that. Um, God, the reason why it's uncomfortable is because God disrupts our life and invites us to participate in his agenda for the world. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this. This is God speaking. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land. God is saying, I've come to conduct a rescue mission. I'm here to liberate and redeem my people from slavery. But then look at verse 10. He's looking at Moses and he says, go, you go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of, my, my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Here's what's going on. God recruits Moses to participate in his redemption project. God's recruiting Moses to participate in his redemption project for the world. And I didn't include it in your handout because it would be way too long, and this passage is way too long already. But from this point, all the way through the bulk of the next chapter, it's Moses offering excuse after excuse after excuse to not do this because <laughs> he doesn't want to do this. Over and over and over, he's like, you know, who am I? Oh, I'm not a good speaker, blah, 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 blah. And at, very, at the very end, he just basically says, please send someone else, please. Like, I'm not the man for this. He doesn't want to be a part of God's redemption project for the world. He's uncomfortable. God has disrupted his life and asked him to do something he doesn't want to do. We don't get the, we don't do that, we don't, we don't like this either. We don't want to do this either. Our plans, our dreams, our script for our life, we don't want God messing with. The good news of the gospel is God messes with it. He takes your dreams and obliterates them. Because your dreams are selfish. Your dreams are terrible. Mine are too. And he takes them and gives you much bigger dreams, much better dreams, much better plans for your life than whatever you concocted for yourself. But the reality is, is that's uncomfortable. We don't like that. God's basically looking at you, and he's looking at me, and he's saying, there are people on this campus that you have to love and you have to serve. There are people in your classes that you need to be tutoring. You need to be giving up your time to help them because they're struggling. There are people on your hall that you need to go take out to lunch or take out to coffee because they're lonely and they don't have any friends, and you're the only one that can do it. There are people on this campus that you need to be praying for and be becoming friends with so that you can earn the right to speak into their life and speak truth into their life. The point is, the reality is, you don't want to do it. Moses didn't. I don't either. I get it. There's always, because it's always inconvenient. There's always a million different excuses for why we don't want to do this. We're too busy. Our schedules are too full. Matt or the interns or someone from another ministry will do this. They'll take care of those people for us. But, but what Moses is receiving here is he's receiving an invitation personally 
I want you to do this. And I think God's doing the same thing. I want you to do this. I mean, there are some, there are some people here, myself included. I'll put myself at the top of the list. I'll just say, we are comfort addicts. We're addicted to comfort. We only want to hang out with our friends, our three friends that we brought from high school, and there's new people here. I don't want to step across and introduce myself to somebody because that feels uncomfortable. That feels weird. It feels weird to talk to someone new. But don't you see how selfish that is? Don't you see how self-absorbed and narcissistic and addicted to comfort that is? God is pulling us, inviting us out of ourselves, as uncomfortable as it is, to actually go love other people. And the weird thing is, is that when we do that, when we actually die to ourselves for the sake of other people, that's, weirdly enough, where we find ourselves, where we find the most joy, the most comfort, the most satisfaction. So let me ask you this as we wrap up. Have you encountered the God of the Bible? Have you encountered this God, the real God, the God of heaven and earth? Because encountering him, is, it's unexpected. You run into him in places that you would never have thought, maybe in a depression, maybe the lowest point of your life, and you actually find out he has been looking after you. He's been looking for you the whole time. Encountering the God of the Bible, it's unsettling. When you come into his presence, it, it should be at some level, at least initially maybe, disturbing because you, you're, you feel totally exposed. But encountering God is unimaginably good because you realize he has nothing but grace and love for you if you will take it in Jesus. But also, lastly, encountering God is, is it's uncomfortable because he asks you to do things and he calls you to do things and he invites you into the privilege of doing things that may feel uncomfortable. Which, by the way, we know that Moses obeyed. We know that he obeyed, because this is why we have the book of Exodus. This was uncomfortable. He didn't want to do it, and he did it. And actually, I think that's a great way to measure whether or not you're actually growing as a Christian. That you look and you say, okay, God's commands for my life, God's agenda for my life may feel uncomfortable, but he's worth it enough for me to do it. I value him over whatever agenda, over whatever pitiful comforts I want to gravitate towards. He's more valuable than whatever I came up with. It's uncomfortable, but that's actually where you find him. That's where you find life. And so the invitation for you tonight is to come to him, to encounter him right here in AMB 210. Because I really do believe he is present and available if you'll call out to him, if you'll reach out to him, if you'll reach out in faith. So consider that an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, I pray for my um, friends here that may have not encountered you yet and may not know what to think about all this. They may be bored and may um, be disinterested. They may be stirred and are searching and thinking about these things, maybe wondering and questioning how you can be real, if you are real, what you are up to, if you are up to anything. Father, for my friends in the room that are searching, asking, exploring, Will you encounter them? Will you meet with them? Will you crash into their lives like you did with Moses's? For my friends in the room that feel like they have encountered you and have a relationship with you, I pray that you will stir up and 
um, fan to flame that relationship in a deeper and richer way, that they would come to experience your shocking holiness and yet your unimaginable love in deeper and more robust ways in their own lives. We do not want to leave this room the same as we came in. So will you help us by your grace, transform us by your spirit, and that would be our prayer. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.